read scripture out loud for every service. There's this tradition, you know, in some churches that after the scripture is read, you would say the word of the Lord and thanks be to God, which I think would be helpful because at least we'd have to say the word of the Lord and thanks be to God. What the heck was that all about? No, Chris, I didn't get, I didn't text you. Oftentimes I'll text Chris when she's reading scripture just to double check a certain part of your email. Chris is not reading it today. I don't really want to get up and read it because I just, 11 either, but she did a great job. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot in there. Now, now if, you know, as Protestant Christians, we could just take the Mark passage that Brian read. But in saying this, all Jesus said that all animals are clean. And you're like, that's how we explain this passage. Very short sermon for today. Um, <laughs> Jesus says something that, that goes over all this, so we're done. Uh, don't have to worry about that anymore. Um, but what I think is that, that we've been talking about as we go through the book of Leviticus, and it's a challenge to see it at times, is that there's, there's, there's a spiritual truth that remains from what is being done. Yes, Christ um, changes or, or expands or um, uh, it seems to like um, push away some of these things, like with this food thing. And yet in his own teaching, he says he comes to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He comes as one who's there to bring fulfillment to these things. And so the challenge for us today and the challenge for us as we go through Leviticus is how to see these things as, as fulfilled and not as abolished. Now, for those of you following along, this is our first sermon in the second or the third segment of the book of Leviticus. And so if you've been, if you've been here, there's the, the book of Leviticus is divided pretty cleanly into sections, 1 through 7, 8 through 10, and 11 through 15. Now, if you want to see where ritual priesthood and purity go, this is how it sort of fills out. And so 1 through 7 was primarily concerned with ritual, and there we talked about the burnt offerings. Uh, the next section was concerned with the priesthood, which was has these two narrative units. And man, preaching on narrative units, the sermon just came together. It wasn't like, how do I make sense of all these animals? Um, so the priesthood units we did the last two Sundays, and this is where we start the, the sort of purity laws, the God's sort of purity laws, or often known as the place I skip when I'm reading the Bible. Now, you'll notice, though, that then there's 16 through 17, and then the book sort of moves outward from there again. Now, this last half is generally all considered the holiness code, but the issues are addressed in sort of a descending order. It goes back to purity, then to priesthood, and then to ritual. And I think one of the challenges with the book of Leviticus as we look at it is that, you know, we say this stuff doesn't matter, this stuff doesn't matter. God just wants us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And we've talked about this, that phrase comes from the book of Leviticus. So there's something here that when Jesus is asked about the law, he doesn't pick just Deuteronomy. He goes back to the book of Leviticus to say that contained within this is something about that love for others, that love for other people and other things. And so this morning we're going to try and figure out where that might fit into these food laws. Now the first thing I want to say about this sort of section of scripture it has to do with a podcast I was listening to this week. Um, does anybody listen to On Being with Krista Tippett? It's on NPR. Um, yeah, it's a good podcast. Um, I'm sure you can listen to it live, but being youngish, I only listen to it on my phone. Um, but uh, she was interviewing the, the sort of social psychologist 
Jonathan Haidt. Now, Jonathan Haidt is, is sort of famous at the moment in the research he does on university campuses, that, that, that virtually um, the university campuses have become sort of ideologically, at least from the teaching perspective, all one school of thought, which would be more progressive. And while he shares that school of thought, he's worried about what this does to our learning. Like, how can you question things if everybody comes from one school of thought? But one of the things he started to do is he looked up what happens how we understand our moral universe. And so I just want to read this exchange between him and Krista Tippett about the moral universe. He says, uh, so when I entered this field of, of looking at of, of morals in 1987, it was dominated by people who were pretty far left. And so morality was basically defined as altruism. Altruism is like charity. And it was especially altruism towards poor victims. So ideally, helping poor kids in Africa, that is the best thing that you could possibly do. So all the research was about compassion, about fairness and justice, and that's it. When I took a course in cultural psychology from a wonderful anthropologist, we read all these books about these ethnologies and studies of morality in other cultures. And people care a lot about food, and food taboos, and menstruating women in the body, and all these things that I had read 15 years before in the Old Testament. And I realized, oh my God, almost every culture on earth has this very broad conception of morality. It's not just about, am I hurting you? Am I treating you fairly? Ms. Tippett responds, right, a whole array of things that are that come under the category of moral. Exactly, issues of purity and authority and group loyalty. And the interesting puzzle which is now being solved is how did the West get so weird? And by weird, I'm not using that as an insult. Weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Whenever you have a society with, that has those five attributes, the moral domain shrinks down to individualism and rises up. And in, in, shrinks down, individualism rises up. People get more analytical. There's a massive set of changes that happen. And everybody in this room, this is, he's talking to Crowley, says this, dare I say, is weird. Western, educated, individualized. It's not hard to see how that relates to where we are in the sermon today. It's that when we think about morality, most of us generally think about just fairness and justice. Is it fair? Is it just? Is it, is it helping poor people, right? That's the moral life. And yet for most of human history, most of all time, morality was this broad set of connected interrelationships on how do you deal with story, uh, or how do you deal with authority? How do you deal with your tribe? How do you find peace? How do you, how do you work things out together? What is your ethical diet? These things weren't just Old Testament things. These were normative for most of world history, is that, is that you would have broader conceptions of what makes you a moral person. So when I say uh, to somebody, well, I think he's a pretty good person, I'm generally not thinking about what he eats. I'm generally not thinking about how he respects authority, although it might be a little bit. I'm generally not thinking, this is the last one, is how he responds to sanctity, holy things. I mean, you can think about this we have this in our own society to a little bit, because if somebody were to laugh through a whole funeral, you would say that they're sort of abandoning authority and sanctity in some ways. They didn't get the moment. But we don't name these quite as well, which is, which is when I was thinking about all these food laws, we're like, oh, it's so weird, they're so obsessed with all this food. Is that like, you know, does anybody know what GF means on a, on a menu? Or VE? Or... Uh, 
um, you know, I'm, I'm doing the Cato diet right now, or I'm doing Whole30, or I'm doing, um, you know, I'm, I'm testing myself to see if nightshades are causing why I can't sleep at night, not that I stare at a screen all day. Um, uh, all of those things, I mean, we haven't quite pushed off food notions ourselves. We just don't hold them in some sort of moral universe. And so what his research suggests is that, you know, this sort of morality is a good thing to help expand ourselves. It actually helps in some ways to have a broader definition of what the moral life is. And I should say that, that Jonathan here is, is um, the guy who interviewed is a, is a Jew. And so when he went to college, he finally decided to read the Bible. And that's when he sort of lost his faith. And then as he sort of come back to studying the moral universe, he's come to more of a... Um, probably more of an agnostic position, but at least doesn't see that as a reason to lose their faith anymore. He actually sees its import as having some good. And so this is sort of what we, we come to when we come to these stories, is, is that this is setting up a broad moral universe. One of the things when we started this sermon series we talked about is, is Charles Taylor's conception of, of sort of how we lived with buffered selves today. Um, we lived with selves that don't have a lot of interaction with like, the reason why I'm sick must be scientific. And so when we find out, like, depression is making us sick, it's very hard. So, like, when we think that, like, our mental state really affects our body that much, normally it causes a break in people. They're like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. For most of world history, that would not be a unique phenomena that, that like, how you are and think would be affecting your, your well-being. And so we live these very buffered lives where we don't see the intersections of all these different things. We don't see unclean and clean, or we don't worry about when some sort of insect falls into our food, whether we should eat it or not. And yet they lived in this sort of, this porous self with lots of, well, you might worry if it's a big insect. Merle, you'd still eat it. It wasn't. <laughs> um, yeah, everybody's got different temperaments. Um, the The... Now I'm thinking of a joke that's totally unrelated. Um, uh, we don't. We live sort of buffered, walled off from these things, and so we don't have a lot of meaning injected into our lives. Which brings me to this line that one of my favorite theologians, he was told to by a rabbi, was, any God who won't tell you what to do with your pots, pans, and genitals isn't worth worshiping. Um it's a particularly Jewish mindset um, there. Um, yeah, pots, pans, and genitals, which I love the combination of, of, of what's going on there. And basically, that is a little bit of Leviticus 11 through 15 summarized. This God cares about what you do with your pots, pans, and genitals, what you eat and what you don't eat, right? But what I think that, that this theologian took from that as a Christian was an attentiveness to the ordinary an attentiveness to how we set up lives, our lives, an attentiveness to how we live is actually sort of maybe the truth embedded in this. As Christians, we don't worry so much about our diet at times, and we don't worry as much about what's clean and unclean. But what this theologian took is that, that this is an attentiveness to like the ordinary days of our lives. <laughs> Just What a horrible thing that that soap opera took that phrase. Um, uh, when you say it out loud, it just you're reminded of it. I should have let it go. Um, uh, so it, it, it sort of brings an attentiveness to where we are and what we're doing all the 
time. And so that's what's interesting is the first 10 chapters are concerned about this priesthood thing and what sort of holiness needs to happen to approach the holiness of God. And what happens is, is in verse or in chapter 11, it turns outward to all your tables. They're primarily concerned about the altar in 1 through 10. But in 11, it says all tables now have some consideration of what it means to approach the holiness of God. And if you think about this for the priests, it's that if it were just them and their table, if that was all that mattered, is that the sacrifices went well and the people could do whatever they wanted. In, in the Jewish mindset, there's a sense in which the priests would become liars and everything happening in the temple would be a lie. That what's ritualized in the temple is the participation of the whole life of the people. And if the whole life of the people isn't called in the holiness, then there's no point in doing the temple thing. So if our tables aren't ordered, and yet we come and we gather upward for this worship that comes to God, it in a sense makes a liar out of what we're doing when we gather. It makes what we're saying false. And so this, this sort of movement that happens here is actually sort of gives us this lens for paying close attention to our materiality. It says that life outside the sanctuary matters as much as life inside the sanctuary carries that meaning out from the sanctuary. And that's sort of where you could see the struggle in ancient Near Eastern religions. Many of them say, what happens there, that's sort of the, the ritual holy thing, and we can do whatever we want. But it's not so with God's chosen people. They have their own challenge of sort of needing to live this out. So that's a very long introduction, because I don't have a lot to say about the animals. <laughs> um, it is interesting, you know, I've, I read a lot this week more than you would care to about, um, about this. Um, but why these animals? Why does God separate it this way? There's, there's one of the earliest thoughts on this was like it was to teach self-denial. It was to teach self-control. That if you're going to be set apart, if you're going to be holy from God, is that you could learn some self-denial, you could be self-control. Now, I'm sure some of you are thinking, why would you just pick animals? Like if you're supposed to learn self-control, why don't you pick the big thing? Now, if you're reading the stuff on, like, the power of habit nowadays, or, like, what habit means, these are all sort of non-Christian books. But if you're reading these books, which are, are relatively good, mental science says that you only have so much will to resist in your life. So if you're trying to quit something big, it becomes very, very hard. But they also suggest that willpower is also a muscle. The more you use the muscle, the more you're capable of more and more greater lengths of self-denial. So while it seems weird to say, God just picked these animals abstractly to teach them self-control and self-denial, if that's even the truth, we'll go through a couple other reasons, it still builds in within a capacity of people to say um, no to other things. Willpower, rejection, self-denial is sort of this muscle. We have to use it wisely. And so God, by building this into them, gives them a chance to grow in that muscle. The second reason why that, that some people, Christian and Jewish interpreters, come up with is that the animals represent sin. This was a particularly interesting one. It was like the insect, well, that insect, uh, the, the animals that crawl, they re represent sloth and laziness, which you could see, you know. Uh, that makes sense. They're lazy. They just crawl around everywhere. Um, 
when I would slouch in my music chair in, in eighth grade, my teacher would say, you sit there like a snake. You just look like you're going to fall out of it. Um, very nice music teacher, by the way. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that they represent some sort of sin. The next thing that came up was just sort of that it was arbitrary and it had no meaning. There's one of the, one of the more interesting ones also was cleanliness, is that the animals, if you're a Jewish migrant farmer, the animals that you're allowed to eat are these herding ones that sort of come with you. And you're familiar with their lives and what they do and how they live. They're your animals, right? And so what they do is that when they look out at other animals, they find that they don't seem to live lives as clean. They seem to, to eat whatever is in front of them. They seem to not have the same appropriate sort of care for their community, for their body, for these type of things. And so if you spend all your time with animals, these are the type of things you would notice. And so what happens is, is they, they sort of come up with this food law, or God gives it to them. Uh, it works both ways, I guess, is that these sort of animals are unclean because we've witnessed what they do. And the animals we bring with us are clean because of the way we take care of them, because of the way we feed them, because of the way we sit with them. There's some human part of this. Uh, I like that somebody pointed out that all the animals were ugly, that they're not supposed to eat, which is beauties in the eye of the beholder, I think, some degree. Um, one of the more interesting, this is where it gets really fascinating, is that God's people are supposed to be a people who show justice. And they're not to be a people who show injustice. And what happens with these food laws in a pre-modern mind, in a modern mind that doesn't do science and all that, is what you can see is that like they, they don't eat animals that don't have the ability to be animals in their mindset. They don't have protection. They don't have um, the right type of skins. The, the most clearest example that where this became, I finally got what this person was saying, is fish without scales. Like how do they survive? How do they swim? How do they do these things? Or if the thing is a scavenger, right, and you then kill the scavenger, it's not just that the scavenger is dirty, which there's sort of a cleanliness component of this too, possibly. Um, but you kill the scavenger, you're killing an animal that doesn't have its own ability to hunt and survive on its own. Or from the other end, let's take a lion. A lion can hunt and takes down six zebras. So it's also sort of an injustice too. And this person goes through the whole holiness code, or particularly this portion, arguing, and I think pretty convincingly, that this is then mirroring God's concern for justice and injustice. The animals they meet each have some sort of place to be in the world. They can exist as animals, and they're not either animals that prey on other people, and they're not animals that, that um, are just simply preyed upon, right, that are, can't survive. Now, if you think about this, particularly in the latter half, what Jesus calls us to is that we are not supposed to be people who prey on other people. We are, we are supposed to help those who are preyed upon by other people. And so what happens for these uh, nomad people is that they begin to inject that into how they're going to they're not going to eat things that prey on others, and they're not going to eat things that don't have protection for themselves. We'll stop there with reasons why these laws might exist and go to, the, to, to perhaps the primary reason why they exist, which is so that these people can be set apart, 
which is what it says at the end of what Chris read. You were still with us when we got to that point. It's so that you can be holy the way the Lord God is holy. Now, what this sort of image captures is how maybe that works for us. So on the, on the left side, this is the left side over there too, yeah. Uh, on the left side, you have humankind, and then Israel, and then priests, and then holiness sort of at the center of God's holiness. And so what happens is humankind is created in the book of Genesis at the beginning, and then what happens is Israel is called out as a smaller set of people. And then the priests are called out to be the ministers among them and to teach them to be the kingdom of priests. And then God's holiness resides at the middle. That's sort of how this movement works with people. So what happens with these food laws is it goes to animals as well. There is, after the flood, um, in, in the book of, or the story of Noah, Noah gets off the ship and God says that all these animals are for you except for the blood. He says that to all humanity. And so all humankind, as you can see, the, the outside the circle, or the biggest circle, however you want to interpret it, is humankind. They can eat all animals. And yet, if you're going to be a subset of people in that, then you're going to eat few animals. You're going to be drawn into being set apart by or by uh, diet to some. Next is, is, is sacrifices, and this is where the priests are, and this is where they eat. The, most of the priests, they don't get to eat all the food that people get to eat. They eat the meat that they slaughter for the people. So the priests are called out. And then at the middle sort of resides God's holiness again. God gets the unblemished animals as we went through the animal sacrifices in 1 through 7. God got the spotless ones, the one without defect, right? And so what happens is, is that their sort of moral universe for food is divided up the way that people are as well. Now, one of the things that, that we can point out with this is that Israel's mission is to be a blessing to everyone. So if you look at this and you just think, well, it's just nice to be divided and just pull away from everyone, Genesis, the call to Abraham, the first call for Israel to be a people, is said that I will bless you so that you will bless the nations. So none of this is meant to be like, well, then we just don't have to deal with everybody else. It's lucky that we build our holy huddle. The actual call for the Jews and for the Hebrew people is to be a people who can bless others. And the reason for the diet also given at the end that Chris read is that this is the God who has called them out of Egypt. They once ate few and now they'll eat. Uh, they once ate what they were given and now this has changed. They once were slaves. This is why Israel doesn't normalize its diet for other nations and why I think Christians should be concerned about the setting up of a just society but shouldn't maybe be as concerned about making sure their morality is legislated for everyone else is because what's true in this, this story is you know the God who rescued you. That's why you eat like this. Being rescued and saved by this God is why you have this diet. So to then legislate it for everyone would be to miss the point. It's born out of being rescued by this God. It's not born out of humans sort of making it happen. And so this is why I think that, that Jews generally get this better, is legislating your morality to Gentile, people outside the covenant people, makes no sense. Because first, you need to be saved by this one.
just looking at the time and, and trying to figure out where we are. The, the, and so the last thing that the rabbis will sort of say about this is that the commandments are given to refine humanity. Even these commandments are given to refine the humanity. Which means that they're not just looking at these as just sort of moral demands, a diet that God places on us, but something that's meant to refine us. You can imagine it working something like this, is that humanity is not supposed to kill. This is why Adam and Eve don't eat meat. It's after the fall that, that sacrifice and animal uh, consumption happens. And so what God does when he sets up a people is he sets up people who um, have a very limited diet, and that diet is, is controlled by priests who do the sacrifice. So like if you're a first century Jew, you don't really get to slaughter the animals yourself, but you bring them to a priest to get slaughtered. And not only that, if you read other um, Jew, Jewish texts like the Talmud and stuff, there's instructions on how sharp the knife should be so that it's painless for the animal. It's a very humanizing way of handling these deaths. And so then when all that's said and done, you get the meat that you get. You limit it. And so what he reduces their choice of flesh to a few animals. He limits the slaughter to the most humane po way possible, and very few can qualify to do it. And then he prohibits the consumption of blood as an acknowledgment that bringing death to living things is a concession of God's grace and not a privilege of humanity's whim. Life and death belong to God, is one of the greatest teachings of the book of Leviticus. So much so that even when you take the goat's life, that too also belongs to God, and it's not to be done lightly. And so what, what God and the rabbis say they're doing through this is that these are building an ethical life. They're given so that they can refine humanity. They're given so that they can make humanity into something that's called to forth by God. And so that's perhaps the greatest reason here is that they're given to refine us into a people who can discern and to see. So in Acts, there's this story about Peter. Peter is up on the roof praying and he sort of goes into a trance and the sheet descends from heaven with all these unclean animals on it and this voice comes and says, get up and eat. Peter says, no, nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. The sheep descends again, goes up, descends from heaven again. And the voice, and this is always fascinating to me, it's like, pretty strange scene. I think I would listen to the voice. Um, but it tells you how deep these have gone for people. So that the descends from heaven again with the same animals on it that are unclean. And it says, get up and eat. And Peter says, no, I've never let anything unclean to touch my lips. And so the sheep descends one last final time three times. If you think about Peter's denial of Christ three times, it's a very interesting scene. And it descends again with the animals on it. It says, get up and eat. And Peter says, don't you know nothing unclean has ever touched my lips? And then it says, don't call unclean what God has made clean. Love that phrase. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. The next scene, Peter is called into the house of somebody who's a Gentile outside of the covenant to share the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ. He's called to go across divisions and boundaries, to go and move to another life. And so one of the ways, and this is, this is a challenging way to think about this, but I think it's worth 
explaining. One of the ways to think about this is that Christ is the, sh the sheep that descends from heaven. And as Christ becomes human and lives in this earth, tabernacles amongst us, as the Gospel of John says, makes his residency among all these unholy things as an unholy thing, he actually binds everything back up and brings it to God. All of these have been made clean through his life, death, and resurrection, so that he sets a table for us. That all has been made clean. And this is where you'll get Paul saying things like that, that these things are done away with. There is no more Jew or Greek or Gentile because of what Christ has done. That division, while still existing, is disintegrated into what God's good creation has been called to be. It's a very challenging thing, because one of the things we've talked about is death is, is perhaps the most unclean thing throughout the book of Leviticus. And yet Christ is one who goes into death for us, becomes perhaps the uncleanest, so that he can rise to new life. And so when you think about a world that exists in division in so many ways, what's the call to not call unclean what God has cleaned? What are we supposed to do and build into our lives to do that? There's a short answer. This is the last thing for today. It comes from the book of Galatians. And I think that this is sort of the life that now we're moving into as Christians. It's no longer that truth that was there is now being displayed in a different way. This is from the message because I think it helps with it. And you could hear this is life by the flesh as unclean, and this is life empowered by God as clean. It's obviously what kind of life develops when you try to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, Cheap sex, a stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket God, God's magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied once, a brutal temple, temper, an impotence to love or to be loved, divided home and divided lives, small-minded and lopsided pursuits, the vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. This isn't the first time I've warned you, you know. I, if you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. Things like affection for others, exuberant about life, exuberance about life, serenity, we develop a willingness to stick with things, a sense of compassion and heart, and a conviction that a basic holiness, a, a conviction that a basic holiness permeates things and people. We find ourselves involved in loyal commitments, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Legalism is helpless in bringing this about. It only gets in the way. Among those who belong to Christ, everything connected with getting our own way and mindlessly responding to what everyone else calls necessities is killed off for good, crucified. 
Since this is the kind of life we have chosen, the life of the Spirit, let us make sure that we do not just hold it as an idea in our heads or a sediment in our hearts, but work out its implications in every detail of our life. This means that we will not compare ourselves with others, with each other as if we were better or worse. We have far more interesting things to do with our lives. Each is an original. Let us pray. God, you have 